Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. This is digital editor Al Lunsford with Lynx. Destination Kohler is a place that is going to be on top of everyone's radar, uh, if not leading into certainly after we all watch the 2021 Ryder Cup. Originally 2020 Ryder Cup, now postponed, as we all know, on Whistling Straits, the three-time major championship hosts, 2004, 2010, 2015 PGA Championship hosts, also hosted the U.S. Senior Open in 2007 will host uh, the game's great match play tournament uh, contest between the United States and the Europeans. U.S. looking to, to rebound after a not-so-great showing in Paris. But uh, today we're going to give you an in-depth insider's perspective of Destination Coal or what you need to know about the resort and the fact that it's not just this one championship layout uh, as as we all know the name whistling straights we may not know much about what else is there on the ground in sheboygan but uh joining me today to give an exclusive insider's look perspective on destination kohler is a man who's been there a couple times and and knows the ropes out there his name is sean tolson he's a contributor for links uh, and other outlets. I will let him give a little bit of background on himself. But first, Sean, your favorite golf trip experience of 2021 is? Thus far, I would have to say it would be visiting the Fox Chapel Golf Club out in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, it was a, uh, a media event that was essentially... Uh, sort of reintroducing, uh, sort of unveiling the the course to the the non-membership side of the club um, <clears throat> after an extensive multi-year uh, restoration that was done to kind of really bring it back to <clears throat> its core and its its roots um, as it was originally built by Seth uh, Seth Rayner and to be there. Um, at the, the course, I mean, I think my answer is that for, for two real reasons. One is that the course itself was just pristine and it was, you kind of could feel and know that you were on this really kind of classic golden age ground of golf, even if nobody told you, like there was enough about it that just sort of, if you were a golfer and you looked around, you would just no, it had that feeling to it. So that made it special by itself. But then to be there and to be hosted by a select group of the members who were out with all of us media uh, for our rounds of golf playing alongside of us and to, to sort of see their exuberance for their club and their course um, and to see how excited they were to show it off and how excited they were to now have this course in such a beautiful condition and, and restored in such a way that, that really, as, as my host was, was talking to me about, it's, it's one of those courses that you never get tired of playing. Um, and so their exuberance and their excitement for the course and also then just for the game uh, was, was infectious. Um, not that I think any of our, us golf media um, needed a reminder that it's a wonderful sport that we all love playing, but I think those two factors together made for a really memorable, memorable experience. So I know that it's a private club, but if you are uh, living out in that area and you are looking for a club to join, so long as they have the room, that would be the one that I would say uh, is at the top of my list. It was an amazing experience. There are some really, really cool pictures of that place out there. Um, it looks like, a it's in phenomenal shape uh after this restoration um your your typical seth rayner style 
um, over there in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But uh, that sounds wonderful, Sean. Uh, kudos to you for having such a great experience. Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk that's about true. Destination Kohler. Now, Sean, I know you went there uh, within the past year. So you've gotten to see some of the new things going on at DK, as they call it for short. Actually, I don't know if they call it that, but uh, I don't know if they do either, to be honest. But I, I kind of wish that they would, um, because that even sounds more like a resort than Destination Kohler. Mm-hmm. Destination Kohler to me almost sounds, it sounds more like a like a marketing plan, right? Like this is our this is our annual you know, our, our annual program now to, to drum up tourism, this, we're gonna, this year it's called Destination Cold. Mm-hmm. So I've always sort of thought that it just, it's, a, it's an odd name for a resort, but in some ways I will say it does make sense because once you visit, you realize that the entire village of Kohler essentially is an extension of the resort and the couple of hotels I have there. So in some ways, even though it sounds strange, it probably really is now that I think about it, an, an honest name for the resort because the entire village really is that resort by and large. That kind of answers my question that, you know, the first perspective that you get there, uh, that you realize it's, it's more than just one golf course. It's, it's, it's more than just now five golf courses that are there. Well, when did you go? What were the occasions that you've been on, on your, your trips there? Mm-hmm. Um, and can you kind of give a background of, of what Destination Kohler is? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I've had the good fortune to go to be there twice. My first visit was in late October in 2018. Uh, that was my introduction to the resort. Um, but it was also a chance for me to experience the property and the resort from a golf side, uh, but also to... Uh, to kind of experience the resort's annual food and wine event, which was going on. So we were kind of double dipping on my visit there to be able to experience both. And so that was my initial on the ground introduction there. And then my second trip was earlier this summer um, at the end of July. And that trip was almost exclusively golf focused, really with an angle to learn more about how the resort is positioned and preparing itself to host uh, the Ryder Cup. Uh, but in terms of what I learned about really just what Destination Kohler is, even from that first time visiting back in 2018, um, I think you, you learn pretty quickly that the village of Kohler, sort of like the, the nucleus of that village is really the resort itself, the, the American Club, um, which is sort of the primary kind of higher end hotel um, and that everything kind of emanates from that. Um, and I mean, of course, it's, it's a village, it's a town. So there are plenty of people who call it home all year long. So it still does exist as a real town. It's not, it's not sort of a, like a, a Walt Disney World kind of village, right? Where it's at, the, at, at its core, there's, there's no real substance there. Like it, it is a real working village in town. But um, I think the thing that just that's striking when you get there and you start to talk to people or you visit different places is that you realize that it all kind of grew out of the Kohler family bringing their businesses there centuries ago um, from the more built up city of Sheboygan they relocated it to this village that at the time no one really thought it was going to to work and then they built out everything around it over the subsequent decades so it's it's just fascinating i think when you're there to to learn that it started from very humble roots and now everything that's grown out of it uh in some ways all kind of connects back to now the resort even though before the resort even existed, it would have just been the main Kohler Industries factory, really. So yeah, it's just a very interesting, very interesting place to visit. But at the same time, it all it feels remarkably comfortable 
and you feel very welcome the moment that you drive through the 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 village village boundary as it as it were yeah and a lot of people you know may have this this question uh which would seem obvious once you know the answer but Kohler, is that the the name of the you know toilets and the bathtubs and shower products that uh, I've seen pretty much everywhere. If you live in the United States, you've probably used a Kohler product. Yes, it's it is that Kohler. Um, Herb Kohler is the the founder there, uh, and he actually did some work, which we'll talk about on uh, the new short course that was built uh, called the Baths. Uh, pun intended, I believe, uh, which has a couple of, of water hazards known as baths, but, but yes, it, it was the, uh, the original Kohler warehouse and, and, uh, headquarters. And like Sean mentioned, everything kind of emanated around that American club and branched out from there. Now destination Kohler may be most well-known for, it's golf. So, so let's start with the, the courses that are there. You've got four 18 hole Pete Dye courses and now a 10 hole short course, uh, the aforementioned baths, uh, built by Chris Lutzke and Herb Kohler. Uh, Lutzke is a Pete Dye protege. So Dye's fingertips are all over that place. Um, it's from what I know about it, it's segmented into two locales. So you've got the I guess it would be the whistling straight side of things and then the black wolf run side of things. Am I getting that right, Sean? Um, That's how it's dispersed. So you've got two and two and the the short course is is also there at black wolf run. I'm going to go through each course quickly. And Sean, if you could, I want you to kind of give me just a quick synopsis I know we talked before, you've played all the courses now, so if you could just kind of briefly describe the the feel and and style of each, I'm just going to rapid fire them real quick. So Sure. Um, so let's start with the, the Big Daddy, Whistling Straits. What can you say about that place? I would say there are three things that stand out when you play the course for the first time. Number one, there are several holes which several holes where much of the fairway is obscured by mounding or bunkers from the tee. So it really doesn't feel like you're hitting your drive anywhere safe. It feels almost like you're, you're hitting your drive into certain doom. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. Number two, I'd say that there are a lot of bunkers. Uh, the 11th hole alone, which is a, a par five called the sandbox. Uh, that one hole has more bunkers on it the enti- than the entire river course at Black Wolf Run. So that gives you an idea of how many bunkers Pete Dye brought into this design. Uh, and then the third thing is that most errant shots I've discovered can be found. Um, you may not be thrilled when you find it, but you're not li- likely to lose many balls, even on the holes that play along the edge of Lake Michigan. Uh, I think in most cases, the shoreline's distance from you on the course uh, is kind of an optical illusion. And that can be true even further inland in terms of errant shots being found. Um, earlier this summer, I, I blocked a drive on the sixth hole and I watched it fly way offline. And I, I was convinced I was never going to see that ball again. But my caddy wasn't too worried. And then sure enough, we found it. And it was in a fairway bunker with not too bad a lie and a decent angle to the greens. So there are times where you can get lucky and find your ball and actually be in an okay spot when you were convinced that you were dead. Uh, and then I've had some of my playing partners hit shots that were sort of offline and you thought, Oh, that won't be too bad. And you get up there and it is buried in cabbage and you're like, wow, you are hacking out at best if you can even get a club on it. So uh, there's kind of a mystery there in terms of, you don't know what you're going to get um, which I think is why almost everybody that you talk to who knows that course well, certainly Michael Riley, the director of golf at, at Destination Kohler or Mike Aschenbach, the, the head pro there, they will tell you like it's imperative. Like the tee shot is the most important shot on that course because it's really about keeping your ball on short grass. And if you can do that, it's very gettable. Um, but if you can't, you'll find your ball, but you may also wish that you didn't find your ball. If you had to pick 
in terms of the, the Ryder Cup coming up, if you had to pick a place to go on the course to say this is, as a fan, if I were going to go to the Ryder Cup and if I were going to sit and post up one place, where would you go on the course? Do you have a particular hole or a particular stretch in mind that would be really good viewing for, for match play? Yes. Um, I would say that there is there are six grandstands that are going to be erected uh, and that were being erected on the ground when I was there, even in July. Um, the one that I would seek out would be at the 12th green. Um, and, and more so than just being at that grandstand, you want to be at the top uh, because being at the top will offer you views, not only of that 12th hole, but then you'll also be able to get views of the 13th hole and you'll also be able to see the 16th tee. So you'll be able to get a bit more action from that one spot where you're sitting. And the 12th hole, I think, is, is an interesting hole because it's a short par three. Um, I mean, from the very back tees, it's only going to play 163 yards on the card. But the green has a lot going on. Uh, there's a, a very back right section of the green, which is sort of, if the pin was there, most of us amateurs would look at it and say, wow, that's a sucker hole location. Um, but it's one of the only areas on the green that really is relatively flat. And so if the hole is going to be positioned there, then I think you're going to, it'll be dramatic and interesting because you're going to have the Ryder Cup players basically in like a sharpshooting contest, hitting short irons or even wedges if the, if the wind is helping them uh, to this tiny little plot of, of of a green that's sort of perched right on the edge of Lake Michigan. So like that's going to be exciting from a shot making standpoint, but then the green itself has a lot going on. The it's huge for, for starters. And then the front and middle sections are strewn with a lot of contours and moguls. And those can do two things. I think they can alter a tee shot's final location based on how it bounces and rolls. So a shot that looks great in the air um, can just get a nasty bounce. And then suddenly you know, what you thought was a great shot isn't. But then beyond doing that, those contours and those moguls will, will make for very challenging putts. And so I think then there'll be a lot of drama on that hole, even if the pin location is in the middle, uh, because you might be on the surface, both players will be on the surface, but there's no, there'll be no guarantee that a putt's going to be close or that they're going to make it, right? So it's, I think that's going to be a, a really good hole for a lot of drama. But then beyond that, I think the other two holes that come right after it are, are a stretch of holes that I was told when I was there are likely going to be kind of pivotal for Ryder Cup matches. And that's the 13th and the 14th, because they're both shortish par fours and they could be drivable given the wind conditions and also the tee location. And so as you're getting into the back nine uh, of these matches, I think that's where then leads will really be strengthened or comebacks can be can be had and what also is interesting that i learned is that captain stricker hasn't modified the fairways uh as much uh in terms of the width or 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 their size really their shape uh he hasn't really modified them at all and i've heard that other Ryder cup captains in the past had done more of that to try to give their teams uh, a bit more of a home field advantage. Um, I believe Captain Bjorn did that um, at, in Paris, even though some of those fairways I think are pretty narrow to begin with. I think he tightened them up even more. And we saw, we saw how it paid dividends for him because our longer hitters just couldn't keep it in, in the fairway. And, and that kind of was the end of it for us, I think in some respects. So but Captain Stricker isn't doing that here uh, for the most part. What he is doing more of, though, is strategically choosing where the tee boxes are going to be placed. And I think that he's then thinking that that's going to give the American team more of an advantage because if you look over the lineups, the rosters uh, to this point, there are more big hitters on the American team than there are on the, the European side. So I think that might be something, especially on those holes, 13 and 14, where um, where it could get interesting if they become drivable and he moves the tee boxes up closer to where the average amateur might be playing those holes on, on an any, any day round of golf. 
it'll be interesting to then see how those holes play out. But then it'll also be fun for the average amateur to then watch the PGA pros essentially play a hole from the same tee box that they would play. And you're going to watch these guys most likely, most likely play the hole a lot better uh, than, than you would as an amateur. So I think it's, that's going to be telling for the people who are paying attention, who have either played that course before or want to, if they focus on it and they pay attention, they'll, it will be, I think that will, those holes will then reveal really how big a difference it is between your best player in the world and us amateur players who, when we're playing well, think, oh, we're not that far off. And you realize, I think, I think the Ryder Cup and those holes in particular will show you just how, how much distance there is between being 10th in the world and being a 12 handicap. That's the great part of this being on a public course and at this public facility that so many people are going to have the chance to or are, have had the chance to play. Uh, is the comparability of, of one's game to now seeing these guys go. Uh, and, and that's the beauty of match play, too, is they're going to be very aggressive uh, with some of the lines they're taking and, and how they approach certain holes, just depending on how the match is going. It's also been a talking point that it plays a lot to the style that may favor a European team. So I agree, it will be, it'll be fun to see how the Americans uh, respond and, and, you know, hopefully prove the, the doubters wrong that this is, this is the U.S.'s advantage and, and not the Europeans on American soil. The unpredictability of, of Whistling Straits is going to make fascinating television. And I think like what you saw at Inverness in the Solheim Cup where a lot of people weren't really giving three and four footers away. Uh, I feel like you'll probably see a lot of that too at Whistling Straits because of how unpredictable those greens with all of their hollows and bumps and bumbles are going to be. And then, yeah, you can go out, you fly into Chicago, you fly into Milwaukee, Green Bay, everything is within driving distance right there and go, go test your metal on this course after seeing how the pros do. It's uh, what makes Destination Kohler a great bucket list worthy place to go is the high caliber championship golf that's accessible to all. But I didn't know that, Sean, that what you were mentioning about how it's um, a little deceiving. Um, it looks like it's a go for broke type of course where you almost have to hit it exactly where you want to, or else you're either swimming in Davy Jones locker or you're, you're in the, the tough tall grass somewhere. So thank you for your insight there on the flip side of whistling straights. The other course out there, uh, is called the Irish course. Uh, and for good reason, I think it from all accounts, it's, it's almost as, as if you stepped a uh, foot in Ireland, uh, even with roaming sheep around, what was your experience like there? Or what, how would you describe the Irish course? Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, the, the Irish and the Straits uh, at certain sections of those courses are basically like abutting one another. Um, so, and the entire parcel of land um, actually that encompasses both courses was initially like um, airstrip uh, level flat uh, when uh, Herb Kohler and Pete Dye first looked at it and started talking about wanting to build courses there. And I remember being told that Mr. Kohler actually told me this, that uh, he gave Pete Dye at that point only one single marching order. And he said, make it look like Bally Bunyan. And so, you know, that, that extends both to the Irish course and the Straits course. And so, you know, I think that's, that's one thing that anybody who is visiting for the first time should probably keep in mind is if you can, when you get there, because even the drive from to Whistling Straits from the, the village center, it's going to take you about 15 minutes or so. And thank God we have um, GPS these days because I, I'm convinced that 
20 years ago before we all had smartphones and GPS and cars and people were relying either on their handwritten uh, directions or just what somebody told them. I'm convinced that half the people trying to get to Lewiston Straits would have thought that they were lost because at one point you're just driving through rural farmland and past farmhouses and there's nothing that's that's anywhere around that suggests that you're about to reach a, a golf resort, you know, with two championship caliber courses and a massive clubhouse and all these things, right? Like you can't see any of it until suddenly you're, you get to the, the turnoff point, you see the sign, and then you also see these big mounds and kind of dunescapes. And so that's your first indication that, that Pete Dye was, was here because before they started building the course, it was all pretty much flat, like the farmland that surrounds it. So, so that by itself is really fascinating. But then in terms of talking about the Irish course specifically, I think in some ways it is a good primer for the Straits course, uh, but only to a point. Because right? I think the penal aspects of the course from a terrain standpoint are the same as they are on the Straits, which means that balls that are hit offline are likely going to end up in thick, high, and gnarly fescue rough. Um, I think I've heard some Scots call that cabbage. So there's also no, no shortage of bunkers, which are all sh different shapes and sizes. And then there's the mounding along the perimeter of many of the holes, which can feature both of those aforementioned hazards, the fescue and the sand. Um, it also could present incredibly awkward lives. So if your ball comes to rest in the rough on one of those side hills, I mean, there's a decent chance you'll feel like you're playing t-ball again the ball will be that high above your feet. So, so those are all kind of challenging from the terrain standpoint. Um, and the landing areas and the fairways on the Irish, they aren't much bigger than they are on the Straits course. In fact, they might not be bigger at all. Uh, but what, what is different is that you can see more of those fairways. You can see more of the landing area off the tee on the, on the Irish course than you can on the Straits course. So, I think around on the, the Irish course could help prepare you, I think, for the Straits course. If you can somehow remember that the fairways and the landing areas are really pretty comparable in size, um, even when you're standing then on the, the Straits course and you can't see 90% of it to trust and to know that it's there. If you can do that, then you'll be in, in a, good, a good shape and a good position to, to successfully hit the shot you need to. But that's where the challenge is, certainly on the, the straights course. It's psychologically intimidating because you can't see a lot of what's safe out there, even though there is plenty that's safe. And so you do get more of that on the Irish course. But really, in, in both cases, whether you're playing the Irish or you're playing the straights, the head professional there at Whistling Straits, Mike Aschenbach, had told me that when you're approaching the greens, if you are in between clubs to definitely go with the shorter of the two, because you're going to want to, if there's a chance that you're going to miss hit a shot, you're going to want to be uh, in front of the green as opposed to being over the back. Um, Cause that's where you get into a lot of trouble. So for all those that haven't gone yet, but have plans to, I would say, if you can remember that and nothing else, I think that will, will help you quite a bit. Very good. And maybe that'll dial down the intimidation factor a little bit as well. Um, before you go into your rounds there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply separately let's let's turn over to uh the other golf site there destination kohler uh black wolf run which has hosted a couple of u.s women's opens in 98 and 2012 hosted the world championship of golf from 1995 to 97 again these are all pete die there at black wolf run you have the meadow valleys uh, you have the river course, and now you have the 10-hole 
Baths Short Course. Dealer's Choice, Sean, which, whichever one you want to start with there, um, feel free to tell us. But, but what do you know about the courses there at Black Wolf Run? I'll start with the Baths, I think, because it's the newest. To me, this was just, it's an incredibly fun 10-hole short course that offers a ton of variety, I think, in terms of both the whole design and the whole length. And I didn't realize it before I got there, but then once I did, I, so I knew that Herb Kohler was involved in the, the design process a bit for this short course, uh, in part because he's traveled the world, played a lot of classic uh, links courses throughout the British Isles, and he's played other classic bucket list courses in this country as well. And so um, I knew that he wanted to bring his sort of experience into the design of the course a little bit. Um, so he definitely had a, had a hand in it. Um, but what I didn't realize is that there were specifically very obvious aspects of classic golf course uh, architecture and, and design features that are that are within this course. So whether it's a punch bowl green, um, I think there may be a Biarritz on one of the greens and there's a Redan. There's even a kind of a replica postage stamp green complex from Royal Troon, which I think maybe like the serious golf course architecture enthusiasts would be at a spot right away. I was able to spot it in part because the hole was called postage stamp, right? So it's like you- uh, That helps. It does help. Yeah. You're, if, in case you're not paying close enough attention, uh, there are a few times where uh, the whole names will help you along. And I played the course twice uh, like, uh, in consecutive sort of loops. And the first time I played it with a handful of short irons and maybe a couple of wedges and a putter. We, I think we had told, we were told before the round started that the longest hole plays maybe 160 yards. So you take an eight iron or a seven iron, you know, if you, if that's what you need, and then a few shorter irons and a wedge or two. And we played it that way first. And then my playing partners and I, for our second round, we kind of, partly because we were inspired by a group that we saw out there, a group of four buddies, all of them had drinks in their hands. None of them had shoes on. Uh, they all had a single club and, and a putter. Um, Although they, I can't remember, maybe even some of them just had a single club, uh, but at most they had two and they were just playing it that way uh, from the more forward tee uh, position. And my, my buddies and I, we looked at each other after we saw them playing it that way. And we said, that might be the way to do this, uh, which isn't to say that we weren't having fun playing it the more traditional way. But I think you also clearly learned, and this might just be because the course still new uh, is that it's plays very firm and fast and so you know uh, an eight iron into a green where you feel like you flushed it and you've and you've hit the number that you want your ball may bounce and roll for quite a while before it comes to rest and so you kind of realize we realized I think halfway through our round that first time that you're gonna have to play the course almost a bit more like true links style right and so then we all grabbed gap wedges or or you know sand wedges and a putter and we played it the second time around we kept our shoes on but it was a really fun second round of golf too because it inspired and kind of required us to all come up with creative shots to try to get the ball close because playing it the, the typical Parkland American way of just firing at the pin and thinking you're going to stop it. Like, like the, the ground is far too firm. It's not going to, it's not going to be receptive the way that you think that it should just by looking at it. So it, it was a fun and interesting short course in that respect, because even for an experienced golfer, you, uh, you had to think strongly about how you're going to play a, a 90 yard hole. Right. And you would think like, if you've been playing golf long enough, that it's just sort of like, it's self-explanatory. And on that short course, it really isn't. So 
it was remarkably fun and, and surprising for, for both of those reasons. That's gotta be the idea too, right? That you just go out there and, and, you know, go back to the earliest days of when you were playing golf and just knocking it around, trying to figure stuff out, not really caring about your score. You're not going to post a score from a 10 hole short course. So have fun with it. Right. And, and I love the idea of doing it with just one club, even if it's just a wedge and you have to putt with the wedge too. I think that's a cool way to approach it, especially if you can play over and over again out there on the baths. Um, I know they have a Himalaya style putting course out there too. So it's a, probably a very fun place to be, uh, an extension of your, your golf trip there. Uh, it's a, been a very well-received addition to the property from all accounts. Mm. Um, I actually, I actually learned too, after my trip, when I got back that, uh, that there's an option where you can rent hickory shafted clubs and play the course with those. And you can also then for a, a an additional charge, um, you can pair those hickory shafted clubs with um, era appropriate golf balls. So that would really, I kind of wish I, I, not, I don't know. I don't kind of wish, I definitely wish that I knew that when I was there. Um, but that's just another way that that course can then introduce an even, an even new golfing experience to somebody as well. So it offers, it offers fun in a number of different ways especially for golfers who are only used to thinking about the, the game and playing the game in one way. When I talked to uh, Mike O'Reilly, who's the director of golf operations there at Destination Kohler, which I asked him what his recommended order of play would be at the, the four courses there. I'm going to ask you for your answer once you finish talking about these courses. But Mike described the Meadow Valley's course as the most approachable on the property. Would you agree with that assessment? Yes, to a point. I think, um, I think it's, it's a very good intro. Yes. I think so overall that, that I think that makes sense because it, it starts the front. It's like a tale of two nines. Uh, the front nine is, uh, played kind of through this open kind of prairie kind of meadow like, stretch of land, hence the meadow aspect of the name. So it's a bit more exposed. The, the holes kind of reveal themselves uh, much more in their entirety when you're standing on the tee box. So you can easily see the challenge that's, that's ahead of you. Um, and you can better understand sort of what your first shot needs to be to set up a good second shot. Um, and so in that way, it's, it's a comfortable introduction into your round. The flip side of that is depending on when you play, uh, because that front nine is open with not a lot of, a lot of tree protection, it's more, it is going to be more exposed to the wind. So there are some holes that then become pretty challenging when the prevailing wind is into your face and they're already, it's already a long par four to begin with. And now it's almost playing when I was there in July, for example, the whole I'm thinking of, I think it might be the number one handicap hole or on the course or certainly one of the, the one of the few that are that are up right there and I was playing into a decent headwind and it was a longish par four and it required three shots for me to get on the surface with that wind and so so that can be the flip side to the challenge of it being open and a bit more uh, visually uh, receptive or, or welcoming um, but then it, on the backside, there are a number of holes that uh, kind of come into like the glacial river valley of the Sheboygan River. Um, so you do then get playing, you know, the, the, you get the experience to kind of play through these more kind of tree-lined corridors. Um, and so you do get two different kind of playing experiences across those nines, um, which then I think sets you up well because the river course is predominantly played through that river valley. So those holes that feel like they are a departure from the front nine on the Meadow Valley's course, they'll kind of get you prepared for what the majority of the river course is going to look and feel like. So in that way, I would say that the, the Meadow Valley's course is, is the best one to start with. 
ironically, I started both of my trips, not even necessarily by choice, but I, I started on the river course, uh, which I was told after my round the first time that it's by a lot of the, the golf professionals at the resort, a lot of them would consider the river course to be the one of the hardest courses out of all of the courses at Destination Kohler. And I've always played that the two times I played it, I played it very well. And I, uh, so it was surprising to me to kind of hear that a lot of people feel like it's one of the hardest courses. And I don't know if it's just one of those things where, you know, you, you hear this uh, every now and then, um, certainly on the PGA tour about a, a course, just sort of fitting a player's eye. And for whatever reason, they're comfortable on it, even if a lot of other players aren't. So that might be the case for me because I'm having a hard time really explaining how it is that I played it really well two times in a row when a lot of golf professionals at the resort would say it's one of the harder courses and also describe it as a shot makers course, especially the first time I played it three and a half years ago, three years ago, where I wouldn't say that my irons were particularly sharp. Um, they've gotten better. So, um, but I still played it really well that time too. So I think it's, if I had to tell you between the five courses, I would say the river course is the prettiest, in my opinion, of the five, uh, just for the landscape and kind of playing around and over uh, the river. Uh, there are a few holes that are just so naturally beautiful that maybe that's part of what did it for me, I think, is just like the, the setting kind of put me at ease and I was relaxed by it. And so even if it's a challenging golf course in terms of having to hit precise shots to, to targets that if you just feel comfortable in your surroundings, that that's a big part of what can bring you success. So I love the river course. Um, but I will tell people that it's described as a shot makers course so that I'm not misleading them into thinking that it's, it's a, it's a, an easily gettable course because maybe the, person I'm talking to will feel very differently. But for me, I, I absolutely love that course. I think everyone can relate to that feeling of maybe, maybe not the entire course, but certainly when you step up to a, a given hole, just there, there's something that, that happens psychologically where it, you feel a lot more comfortable. That happens to me probably every round where one tee shot, just for whatever reason, you're like that just suited my, my feeling and my eye uh, off the tee, um, would be nice to have an entire course feel that way. So that that's gotta be a good feeling for you. And so I should probably clarify that I, that there were probably certainly were holes on the river course where I, I was somewhat uncomfortable. So it's not like from the first tee box to the 18th green, it was just me walking on clouds and feeling like I was in this little euphoria it can be a challenging golf course. And actually on that topic, um, during the summer, there can be fronts that roll through uh, that can bring some challenging weather. And that happened for a stretch uh, during my round on the river course where I think I just made the turn um, and the next four holes after the 10th, so 11, 12, 13, 14, uh, the conditions got really, really tough um, blowing 25, 30 miles an hour with gusts that were even stronger than that. Um, and so when that happened, then the course completely changed and my feeling, my feelings about the course for that 40 to 45 minute period of time, um, also changed a little bit. So, um, and then the course got really, really hard, but it was really kind of like a switch was flipped where this weather front came in and for four holes, you were just sort of thinking, where am I and what happened to the course and the, you know, and yeah, what happened to the course that I was on the last 10 holes. And then just as quickly, it, the switch was flipped again and you were back to this sort of more or less benign, calm conditions. And so I think that's, something that can happen with some regularity there during the summer. Um, whereas into the late summer, early fall, the stretch of time we are now, um, as I was told, the, 
the weather is going to be a little bit different in that it's going to be a little bit cooler, obviously. Um, it's going to be still very comfortable for golf, um, but the wind is probably going to be a little bit more steady, um, not necessarily hard like it was when that front r- rolled through, but you're going to have a more steady, consistent wind throughout your round. So, you know, like there are pros and cons to that, but at least, at least you kind of know once you get comfortable with the conditions, they're going to pretty much be what you play through for the remainder of your round. With that all being said, I'm either, I'm going to ask you to either rank them or give me how you would set them up. If you were going to run, run the gauntlet there on a golf trip. Now for Mike O'Reilly's order, which is part of a, a piece on our website on linksmagazine.com uh, called the pros recommend your order of play at the country's premier golf resorts. Uh, I did an East and West version. So destination Kohler being East of the Mississippi river is in my East section. Um, Mike's recommended order was uh, Meadow Valley's river Irish whistling straight. So kind of building up going and playing the two black wolf run courses and then the two whistling straights courses uh, all building to that, leaving the straights for last. So I don't know if you'd answer it the same way if it was ranking or the order you'd play them in. But uh, for you, Sean, personally, how do you how do you stack those? For me personally, I would I would shuffle the order a little bit. Um, I would I would start with the Meadow Valleys. I would then play the Irish and then the Straits and then I'd finish with the river and then maybe you'd be squeezing in a round or two on the baths throughout that if you have a couple hours to kill in the afternoon or in the morning and you want to squeeze in a few rounds on the short course I would certainly do that as well but I would go I would go Meadow Valleys the Irish the Straits and then the river and I say that only because I understand Michael Riley's order and it makes sense. And I think it makes sense on some level. And I think that for, for some players uh, that would be the ideal way to do it. But I think, especially if it's your first visit and you haven't played any of the courses and really the, the top bucket list course out of the four is the straights uh, for obvious reasons that to save that till the end, I think is going to build up so much anticipation to play that, that course that although it makes for a great finale to your trip, I would worry that for a lot of first time visitors that it would build up so much pressure at that point that by the time they got to the Straits that all of the waiting leading up to that round would make it harder for them to really kind of relax and play well. Like I had that experience switching gears a little bit, but when I went down my first time to visit Kiwa Island, um, I had a round uh, at the ocean course This was last year. And I remember being so nervous, a good sort of excited nervous to play the course because I'd never played it and I wanted to play it well. And I didn't really, um, partially just because that's a really hard course, but I also didn't really give myself a fighting chance out of the gate because I was tense, because I was wanting to play well. And I was wanting it too much. And so I think, and that was without even really having multiple days um, ahead of me uh, to, to even think more about that round before it came up. So I just think that saving the straights to the very end gives you way too much time to think about it. And then I think it's just setting the bar of expectation too high. Uh, Not so much in terms of the, what the course is, but probably a player's hopes and aspirations to play well. And I think then in doing that, it can actually have the opposite effect. So I would play the straights a little bit earlier 
um, just so that doesn't become a factor. Yeah, I, I experienced the same exact thing. I think there's also an argument to be made that you save the straights for last, you've already played three rounds of golf and you may not maybe kind of beat at that point. So if you know you want to approach the straights to play well and at your best, then, then maybe you put it in the middle somewhere. But I experienced the same kind of thing you're talking about. When I went to Bandon Dunes, all I was thinking about was how the sheep ranch had, had just opened a few months prior and I just was so had so much anticipation to play and see the course at <clears throat> at Sheep Ranch that I think I opened the trip with Bandon Trails and in my mind I'm all I'm focused on is can't wait to see Sheep Ranch. That I don't know that I appreciated trails as much as I I might have just not really thinking about that and when you go to places like this that are big golf resorts and have a wide variety of of playing experiences i don't necessarily think you want to narrow your focus in on that bucket list round now that's that's hard to do but you're going to want to appreciate the experiences at some of these other places um it sounds to me like having gone twice that you really enjoyed the river course. And I would hate for someone to just bypass that because all they can think about is what they saw at Whistling Straits. So it's a good point made by you. And I think that there's some serious consideration to go into that order. A lot of pressure, a lot of pressure for people who want to play them all, but, but put some thought behind it. And this, this isn't even factoring in also the cost of greens fees. You know, so I think like a round on the straights course is going to be the most expensive out of the four, again, for obvious reasons. So, and I think that that is going to be something that a lot of visitors, travelers, and golfers are going to have a hard time fully detaching themselves from in terms of thinking about what the experience is going to cost. So that obviously they're going to say like, I... I don't, and I'm pulling this number out of, out of thin air. So it might not be this, but like, let's say it might be close to like the Pebble beach uh, rate of like, like a $500 round of golf. If that's what it is, uh, then that's also going to put even more pressure on somebody to want to play well and feel like it was $500 well spent because that's the challenge with golf. I think is that, you can have a, an amazing time on a mediocre course if you're playing well, and you can feel like that mediocre course is amazing because you're playing well. And then on the flip side, you can be on an amazing course, but if that amazing course is, is winning um, and you're not playing well, that it's going to require more effort on your part to focus on the enjoyment of the experience if you're frustrated with, with how you're playing. So then you factor in the cost of what a round like that would be. And that makes it even harder, I think, for somebody to stay in the right mindset to really enjoy the experience if they're not playing well. So all that being said, acknowledging the fact that it is an expensive round of golf, um, I would argue that if you can make it work, financially um, and they have openings that you that you get greedy and you book a tea time on the straights course twice you have one earlier in your trip where also especially if you've never played it before a little course knowledge is going to go a long way I mean I think I don't know that you have to take a caddy uh, on the straights course but I do know that they are strongly recommended at the very least um and and it's really important i think that you that you do have one especially for the first time playing it because there are so many shots that you'll stand over your ball either on the tee or out in the fairway and you'll look and you'll say where am i supposed to put this and so that's where the caddies can really be invaluable for saying all right this is your line trust your line or trust me that I'm telling you where to hit it and don't worry about anything else. That's just where you want to be. And so like, if you can have that introductory experience earlier in your trip 
and then you get a chance to maybe finish your trip with a round. You still get the finale of playing the straights course again, but now you have a little bit more understanding of where the challenges of the course are and and really that there are more places out there where you can hit your shot than, than what seems to be the case. And I think you'll have a chance then to, to play a more enjoyable and a better round of golf also because it's your second time, right? So there's less, you're putting less pressure on yourself at that point and you're able to just sort of maybe see the course more for what it is. So if you can do it, I would say definitely book the straights twice, but it is a very popular golf course to play. So even if you can afford it, the challenge might be finding two tee times. I love it. I love um, giving yourself the chance to to settle a score with one of those bucket list type of courses that you know a lot is, is left to be desired after only one round. We've talked a lot about the golf here at Destination Kohler. Sean, I know you you pinned a piece for us uh, recently after your visit about the lesser known aspects of Destination Kohler. Uh, a lot of that included those lesser known golf courses. Um, but again, there's a lot to the resort here at Destination Kohler that people don't really realize is going on uh, on the ground until you go. Uh, Sean, outside of golf, what are some of your favorite uh, activities or amenities, uh, aspects of the resort there that you've enjoyed in your visits? I would say, first and foremost for me, uh, food and beverage side of things is an amenity that I think is at a as high a level of quality as the golf courses are. And that's something that I don't know that people would expect um, or even prepare for before their, their first visit. So, um, you know, there, and the nice thing about the resort is that it offers from a dining standpoint, it offers restaurants, uh, at different levels of not only price point, but also style of food and, uh, and type of meal. So you can have something very casual in pub type of a, of a place. Um, and then you can have a very high end fine dining white tablecloth experience at, uh, the resorts kind of, uh, probably it's, it's top restaurant in terms of that fine dining experience, which is called the immigrant restaurant. And so, um, so the food is, is really exceptional. Um, so I think that that's something that I would point out to people ahead of their visit there, just to make sure that they're then properly taking the time to even plan out how they want to handle dinners. Um, you know, as much as we talked about how would you build out an itinerary for rounds of golf, I think for the, the foodies out there, um, knowing that the, the restaurant scene at the resort is so strong that they would be equally well served to kind of formulate a, a plan of attack for uh, what they want to do for meals. Um, and also then knowing that there are, you know, there are restaurants that they probably sh certainly shouldn't overlook as well. Um, so that would be the, that would be my starting point. Um, and then kind of on that topic, uh, the, the winery bar is a little kind of tucked in the corner of the resort. Uh, and it's in some ways kind of almost the resort's best kept secret uh, within the American club because the name of the, of the bar is kind of a misnomer. I feel like it's kind of like that, that old story that you learned in elementary school about how Iceland and Greenland were named what they were named because um, it would throw other countries and explorers off the track in terms of what the land was like. Obviously Greenland not being very green. Um, the winery bar, yes, they serve wine uh, in terms of great wines by the bottle or by the glass, but really it's their 
it's the bar's whiskey collection, which is just off the charts. I don't know that there probably is a resort in this country that can really rival their whiskey collection. It's, it's astounding. And it covers everything from uh, American whiskeys, rye and bourbons to single malt scotch. Um, and it is as vast a collection as I've ever seen at a resort. So if you are a whiskey drinker, that is some place that you definitely need to, to go in and, and visit. And hopefully the uh, Peter Calavard is there. He's kind of been described as the unofficial destination Kohler mixologist. Um, this is unofficial title. And he has such a, a, a personal interest and passion for whiskey that, you know, if he's there and you have a shared interest in whiskey, you could spend all night chatting with him and tasting things that you might otherwise never see or hold in your hand uh, unless unless you uh, have a lot of money to spend and are someone who would frequent uh, whiskey auctions. So it's exceptional in that way. Other places, I was amazed my first visit back in 2018 uh, to go to River Wildlife, which uh, is only about a mile away from the village center. Um, and it's just past the entrance point to Black Wolf Run. Uh, but once you get on property, uh, there's sort of like a rustic kind of cabin that uh, has, a, has a restaurant of its own. Uh, it serves fare that would be kind of more representative of a, of a true kind of North Midwestern sort of sense of place. So it's, it offers a very unique dining experience from that standpoint. And it's only by reservation. Uh, but then it's connected to a, a parcel of land that's about 500 acres in size. And they have a number of hiking and biking trails. Um, they can offer horseback riding. You can do clay shooting. They do driven bird hunts. It's, it really is like that outdoors person's uh, sort of heaven, if you will. Um, and the first time that I visited in 2018, I was relying on the resort's shuttle to get me around places. And so I say that because when you get on a shuttle like that, you very easily kind of stop paying attention to where the person is driving or, you know, the route they're taking. And so I was shocked when I discovered afterwards that it really is only about a mile from the village center because once you're on property, you would feel like you were transported somewhere 50 miles away. Like you wouldn't know there's a, a, a five-star resort only a six minute drive away. Like it's, it's really remarkable in that way. And so, yeah, it's just, I think that's the, that might be the thing that people who haven't been to Kohler before would be most surprised by is just how many outdoors related activities you can do that aren't golf. Uh, because I think golf gets the primary spotlight, but there's a lot that you can enjoy uh, that allows you to uh, really kind of take in the, the natural beauty of the of the area that you wouldn't know unless you you seeked it out. That all being said, what would you consider the best time of year to plan a visit to destination Kohler to be? Depending on what you're going for. If you are going to really uh, enjoy the golf courses and to do a lot of things outside, I can tell you from my first visit in 2018, the time of year that you maybe don't want to go is late October um, because it is a crapshoot in terms of the weather you will get. Um, I was supposed to play three rounds of golf that, that first trip in 2018. And I got a beautiful first day of weather for my round on the river course, the first round. Second round was the next day on the Straits course and the Temperature had dropped by probably 20 degrees and it was rainy and raw. And then the third day, it got even colder to the point where I only ended up playing 12, round, 12 holes of golf because on the 13th tee box, it began to snow uh, hard. And the 
greens quickly iced over. And it was very cold from the very beginning of that round. But once it started snowing, it made me realize just how cold it was that day. And so within three days, I kind of experienced three seasons. Um, so there's, there's some unpredictability there in terms of going in late October, let's say. I would think kind of poetically, the best time of the year to visit is probably going to be around the time that the Ryder Cup is there. Um, certainly in September, mid-September to late September, I think uh, would be absolutely beautiful because um, you're high enough, you're far enough north that you might start to get some early foliage changes in terms of fall. So you're going to get a lot of beauty in that regard. I've also been told that around that time of the year are when the salmon are going to be swimming upstream in the Sheboygan River. So that can be quite a spectacle to see for sure. And the weather, I think, from what I was told, around mid-September to late September is going to be really pleasant. You know, it's not going to be hot like it is in the summer. Uh, it won't be too cold yet. I think it's kind of that, that perfect uh, middle ground. And I think with many people wanting to visit uh, during, the, during the high point of the summer for it being the, like the prime golfing weather in terms of comfort and hours of daylight that by visiting maybe a little bit later into the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, you might also uh, benefit from not being there when it's as crowded as it, as it would be during the high point of the summer. So I, I think September might be really the, the perfect time of the year to visit. So I think it's probably just coincidental that the Ryder Cup is always in September, but it's, I think it's going to showcase the area uh, in a really good light for that reason. Yeah, then you can go and say, this is exactly what it was like. I'm playing the exact conditions that they were playing in the Ryder Cup. So another, another little reason to get up there to Wisconsin. Sean, I, we really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us all of your, your insight on this wonderful place. I need to get there. Um, so I'm going to save this one and put this in my back pocket to uh, listen back to when I plan my trip to Destination Kohler. It's certainly high on the list of golf destinations in the United States that I haven't been yet. So um, thank you, sir. Really appreciate your time. Hope we can do this again sometime with a, another wonderful golf locale that you will go and visit at some point. This has been great. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. And I would love to join you again on a future conversation. Okay.